Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Books Podcast. I'm Claire Armistead. I'm Richard Lee. Most people believe you're either racist or you're not. And if you're not, you're nice and good and open. And if you are, you're bad and mean uh, and not open. And that definition actually beautifully protects the system of racism. That was Robin D'Angelo, who we're about to hear from about her book, White Fragility. We'll also be talking to Margaret Busby, who's been dealing with these issues from the other side since the late 1960s when she became the UK's first black woman publisher and whose thinking has just culminated in a magnificent anthology of writing by more than 200 Daughters of Africa. But first, Robin D'Angelo, a sociologist and academic whose work has focused for 20 years on radically changing the dialogue around racism. Her latest book is nonetheless still putting the cat among the pigeons. Richard, the full title of the book is White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism. It's, it has echoes of Reniedo Lodge's mm. book, doesn't it? Does this book actually solve anything? I don't know if it solves anything. It's, 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 as you say, it's got echoes of Reniedo Lodge's book, but it's kind of told from the other side, as it were. I mean, it's, 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 that was it's, why I'm no longer talking to white people about race, for people who don't remember it. Exactly. <laughs> yes, it, it's almost, it's, as it were, kind of the flip side of Reniedo Lodge's book, in some sense. It's, it's written by a white woman talking to white people about why it's so difficult for them to talk about racism and it's a rather uncomfortable experience to read really as a as a white man but then again in a country where black people are three times as likely as white people to be arrested or more than half young people in jail are of BME origin or people with a minority ethnic background have to send 80% more applications before they receive a positive response to to a job application it's it's kind of an uncomfortable situation so it's right that we should be feeling some discomfort white fragility why did you choose that word fragility because that implies somehow being vulnerable when actually what you're talking it's not about it's it's vulnerable to our own prejudices isn't it it's not a normal configuration of that word well white fragility is the idea that that white people react badly when racism comes up or when a discussion of uh, racist issues emerges, partly as a kind of strategy, uh, not a conscious strategy, an unconscious strategy to change the subject, to move it on. And she, D'Angelo, argues that it's a kind of blurring between the society and the individual and between the conscious and the unconscious, which is making this happen. It reminded very much of, of Daniel Kahneman's System 1, Unconscious Thinking, and System 2, Conscious Thinking. And she lays out the idea that prejudice is something that everybody has because we all make unconscious judgments and being brought up in a in a racist society those unconscious judgments are necessarily informed by the racist attitudes around us and then she makes the distinction between that and discrimination which is acting on those prejudices and then racism which is a structural thing about the way that society is put together which puts white people in a position of power which is impossible to avoid and so the accusation of, of racism shouldn't be at all surprising to people who are white. It's just part of the fact of the way we've been brought up in the society that we live in. But when the, these accusations are made, she's been training people in racial justice and in and consulting a, about racial issues for more than 20 years. And when in the sessions, when these accusations are made, people react with anger or denial. They, 
they try and shut it down and say that it's because it's as if they're being accused of being a bad person. But it's not that the idea that somebody has said something which is racially problematic makes them a bad person as such. It's that this is part of the society in, in which they in which they live. So when she joined me in the studio, I began as bluntly as she does in her book, actually, by asking her if me being a white man living in the UK, if she was calling me a racist. I am saying that you've been socialized into a racist system and that you necessarily, as a result, have a racist worldview. So I'm taking that as a yes. (laughs) Well, notice how I dodged. um, (laughs) Because I also know my people, and it's not strategic to come out of the gate saying, yes, you're a racist, uh, because um, people will, uh, white fragility will ensue. And we won't get any further. So yeah, it's not because um, I've done something terrible on the way up to the studio, or because I've said something no. wrong or off. It's it's a, it's much broader than that. So yes. maybe we should start by laying out the difference between prejudice and yes. discrimination yes. And, and racism. And maybe in some ways, gender is a really easy way in. I mean, necessarily, the moment your gender assignment was male, you were socialized in a particular way. I don't think anybody would deny that you, being raised as a boy, you got different messages. You have a different trajectory than I have. And there are parts of that that you might want to change or challenge, right? And it's really similar with being raised as a white person, right? So prejudice, prejudgment, all human beings have socially learned prejudgments about other social groups as defined in a given culture. I mean, everybody has prejudice. There's no uh, human objectivity. And you you say learn, but it's much deeper than explicitly taught, isn't it? It's kind of unconscious as well. Yeah. I mean, we absorb in the same way that being raised as a boy. I'm going to keep going back to that because it's so easy and accessible. There are things you were explicitly taught and then things nobody had to say, but you absorbed, right? Discrimination, of course, is when we act on our prejudice. Everybody does discriminate, mostly in very subtle ways, of course, uh, not to the recipient of it, but certainly to the the perpetrator. Uh, All human beings have prejudice and all human beings act on that uh, more often unconscious or what we call implicit bias, right? And the research in implicit bias is really helpful for people who do what I do because, again, you don't have to be aware of Uh, your thoughts and actions in order to engage in them. When you back a group's collective bias with legal authority and institutional control, it is transformed. It is transformed into a far-reaching system, and it becomes the default of the society because it's infused in in everything. Because backed up with power. Exactly. And so I reserve that term, racism, uh, to acknowledge that really profound difference. Yeah, yeah as um, David Wellman said, it's a, a system yes. of advantage yes. based on race, yes. which we as white people are kind of necessarily enmeshed in. Yes. I, mean, I guess the, the power of the unconscious in this, I think, is something that, that is really interesting. I'm wondering what, what the role the unconscious plays in this, because, I mean, it's, it's something that, uh, for example, Daniel Kahneman has argued that there's different ways of thinking. Right. And that one is actually much more powerful than we often give it credit for. Yeah, actually, our unconscious biases are, are we can think about them as more powerful in that they drive our behaviors, but they're not necessarily known to us immediately. Most people, and certainly most white people, think racism must be conscious and intentional in order to have occurred. And if it isn't conscious or intentional, it can't be racism. Uh, There's a term sociologists use uh, for different types of racism, but one is aversive. And that is the one people like you and I (laughs) 
I'm going to assume you're a nice, liberal, white progressive like I am. I work for The Guardian. Yeah, exactly. Uh, We're most likely to have aversive racism because what we've internalized at the unconscious level conflicts with our professed beliefs. And we're actually more likely to protect that bias and resist challenges to it because, again, uh, it interferes with the way we see ourselves in the world. I guess if all white people are racist, doesn't that rob the term of any kind of explanatory power? No, I think when you take people of color out of the equation, it has a lot of power to say that all white people are racist. That is very provocative. Right now, it is used in a way that either includes everybody or includes nobody. (laughs) Uh, Do you ever wonder what qualifies as racism in the white mind? It, It would seem nothing does. Or that to be a good person and to be complicit with racism are mutually exclusive. It's almost as if it's kind of uh, divide into good yes, and bad, it, isn't it? Absolutely. The good-bad binary. Um, most people believe you're either racist or you're not. And if you're not, you're nice and good and open. And if you are, you're bad and mean uh, and not open. And that definition actually beautifully protects the system of racism. And I think it's the root of virtually all white defensiveness on this topic, because if that's what I think it means to be racist and you suggest that anything I've said or done is racially problematic, I'm actually going to hear that as a question to my very moral character. It's an attack, isn't it? Oh, and now I need to defend my moral character, and, and I will. And, you know, round and round and round we go. You must have misunderstood me because I couldn't have said or done anything racist because I'm not racist, and on and on and on we go. It's actually incredibly liberating to start from the premise that, of course, you've internalized racist thoughts and assumptions and worldviews. And so you can stop defending, deflecting, denying, and actually just get to work trying to figure out, okay, so how is that manifesting in my life and my relationships? And how can I shift my space along that continuum? Right. And honestly, refusal to engage is not going to do that. (laughs) (laughs) You've been been training people about racial justice for more than 20 years now. What kind of reactions do you get when you point out behavior that is, is racially problematic in that kind of setting? Uh, almost invariably white fragility, right? So when I coined that term, the fragility was meant to capture how little it takes to upset white people around race. So for many of us, the mere suggestion that being white has meaning will upset us. Probably even more so uh, will be generalizing about white people. I cannot tell you the emails I get. You know, you're generalizing about white people and that's racist. If I may, so just to preempt some of those. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Do you think I've never heard that before? And do you think that I think it's racist? And therefore, I mean, ask yourself, huh, um, here's someone who's committed to challenging racism. Why don't I ask why she does that rather than uh, insist that she must not realize what she's doing. Because one of the privileges of whiteness is the idea that it's in no way special, that it's neutral. Absolutely. We are the norm for humanity. I am just a person. Toni Morrison is a particular kind of person. And when we're talking about that, we'll go to Toni Morrison. But when we're talking about the universal human experience, we'll go to, I don't know, Shakespeare or Hemingway or something. 
We are unique individuals, of course, and I do not know the story uh, of every one of your listeners, but we are also members of a social group by which we could literally predict whether you and your mother were going to survive your birth. And we can predict how long you're going to live because you're a member of this social group. We have to be willing to grapple with the shared collective experience of being white because there is a shared collective experience. There are messages that every one of us gets regardless of our individual desires or intentions, right? The same way that I would want you to grapple with the collective socialization you got as a boy. You individually had a response to it, but you got it. (laughs) I'm just asking white people to grapple with how we've been shaped by being members of this group. And the insistence that we were not shaped by it uh, is really holding racial inequality in place. So when you say to somebody, there's a problem with what you've just said, what's the response you get? Uh, I didn't mean it, but you need to know this. But it's, an, it's a knee-jerk, instantaneous deflection for, for whatever reason. Um, and if we go underneath and look at what is driving that response, well, then it reveals kind of the paradigm we're operating from. And we keep coming back to only mean people who intended racism could ever be racist or do anything racist. And I'm not mean and I didn't intend it. So now I'm going to need to fight you <laughs> and your suggestion of anything different. And that's even despite the fact that this is occurring in a setting where the whole point of the training is to work out if there's problems with race. Oh, absolutely. No, it's fine on a, a abstract level. If we get real in the room or we, we talk about individual person's actual engagement, uh, that takes us to another level. You know, I was once giving a training, a mixed race group. Uh, I asked a question to the people of color in the room. How often have you given white people or a white person feedback on our inevitable and often unaware racist patterns and had that go well for you? And they laugh and they roll their eyes and, you know, never, rarely. That's something worth noticing, right? I think the worst fear of a white progressive we would, is that we would accidentally say something racist. But then how do we respond when you let us know we indeed disaccidentally did something racist? How dare you, right? So I followed up my question in that room with, well, what would it be like if you could just tell us when we revealed this conditioning Uh, And had us receive that feedback with grace, reflect on it, and seek to change our behavior. And I'll never forget this man of color raising his hand and saying, it would be revolutionary. And just hold that for a minute. Revolutionary. That we would receive the feedback with grace, reflect, and seek to change our behavior. That's how difficult we are. But it's also how easy it is. We simply cannot get there from that current paradigm. So when did this idea that that to be racist meant you were a bad person, when did it arise? Well, it's probably been around for a while, but it seems to me that post-civil rights, it was probably the most brilliant adaptation of the system of racism to the challenges of the civil rights movement, you know, at least in the U.S. context. Post-civil rights, it, it became bad to be racist, right? Those were people we saw on TV that wouldn't let people sit on a bus and that were beating people at lunch counters and had hoods on. 
in the South, of course, <laughs> those were racist. Somebody else. <laughs> right. And, and that was bad, right? And so to not be racist was to be good. And that functioned, of course, beautifully to hold everything in place. And so when white people get defensive when you point out something they've done is, is racially problematic, what's the effect of that? What does that do? I actually believe it functions as a kind of bullying a kind of everyday white racial bullying because we do make it so difficult for people of color to talk to us. Just shuts down the conversation. Oh, that that most of the time they actually don't bother. Just just trust me, people of color working and living in overwhelmingly white spaces take home way more of our daily slights and indignities than they bother talking to us about. Because they tend to risk more punishment. It tends to get worse for them, and then before you know it, they're troublemakers, and they have personal problems, and they don't last, right? So they rarely have the experience of us receiving that with humility. So if all white people are racist, if we're all enmeshed in the system, should we all be feeling guilt? Oh, please no. (laughs) Guilt is not useful. And if you're listening to me, it should be obvious I don't struggle with guilt. The, the moments I do feel guilty is when I haven't aligned what I profess to believe with my actual behavior. Let me be really clear. Niceness is not anti-racism. Smiling at people of color and being friendly and having friends is not ending racism, right? It's not, that is not changing our policies and our practices. It takes intentional action and interruption, right? But guilt tends to immobilize. We're not very effective when we're guilty. We're not in good shape. To be really honest, it tends to just be indulging in kind of self whatever. (laughs) Um, No, it's a natural part of the process of coming to consciousness about how we've been shaped. Just don't get stuck there. Yeah, I guess if we are all a product of our upbringing, what happened to us? I didn't choose it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I didn't choose this and I don't want this. I got this, right? And so now I can get to work challenging it. But getting caught up in whether I'm a good or bad person is just not useful or productive. And it's not what I'm asking for. I guess the, the distinction is to be made between guilt and responsibility. Yeah, absolutely. What do we tend to feel guilty about when we haven't done the right thing? So a great antidote to that is action. So I guess the question is, what do we do from here? So that is the number one question that I get, right? And um, I want to challenge that question a little bit, and then I will offer something. If any white person listening right now uh, has the question, what do I do? I want to ask a question back to you, which is, uh, how have you managed to be a full functioning adult and not know? It's 2019. Why don't you know what to do about racism when people of color have been telling us forever? And that is meant to be a challenge because I actually don't think for a lot of white people that it's a genuine question. I really don't. I don't think most white people are going to do anything different than continue being friendly um, because it, it does take some investment. So having said that... You mean it's a way of kind of abdicating that responsibility, sure. a way of sort of saying... Oh, and it also functions as a way to dismiss what I'm saying because I didn't tell you what to do. Therefore, you don't have to engage. So take out a piece of paper and write down why you don't know what to do about racism, and you will have your map. 
Uh, and nothing on it will be easy or simple. It will be ongoing and lifelong, but there it will be. The first thing will probably be, I wasn't educated on this. Okay, great. Read uh, Rennie Ito Lodge's book, <laughs> among others. Two, I don't talk about racism. Oh, which I would say, I would put it like this. You don't break with white solidarity. Start breaking with white solidarity. That'll put you up against everything within yourself and other white people. Uh, you don't have people of color in your life, or if you do, you don't talk about these things. Notice that everything on that list will guide you to what to do, but it won't be easy, and it won't be comfortable either. Uh, we're not going to get there from a place of white comfort. You say that the answers are obvious as soon as you stop to think, that the, the answers have been, been told to us for many years, but I'm wondering so, what's changed over the last 20 years of your guiding these yeah. sessions in. Well, um, in the U.S. context, we are done with the Obama post-racial narrative. <laughs> <laughs> That's been exploded. Oh, it's gone out the window. Uh, <laughs> nobody in the U.S. anymore would say we are post-racial, so that that makes it easier. But because there, there's a problem. You can see the problem right there oh in front of you. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Uh, it's very explicit. Um, I think this also puts the light on this idea that we're in some kind of arc of progress. I think anyone looking at what's going on in the U.S. and the U.K., no, uh, we're, it's more circular than that. I do function in a atmosphere in which there's more permission to be hostile across race, in which there are more threats of violence. And so it's a little scarier in that way. But for people who would never, of course, threaten violence, I notice more receptivity. I think by kind of ripping away that thin veneer of post-racialism uh, is kind of uh, shocked a lot of white progressives. And there's a kind of urgency, like, help me. <laughs> Something's going on and uh, I need help. And have so you, more receptive. Has your, uh, have you found your sessions being met with, with increased a danger of violence to yourself? Um, I have received death threats, and I get very ugly emails. Uh, I get more beautiful emails, um, emails that say, you really have changed the way I've thought about these things, or from people of color who say, I finally feel <laughs> validated. Unfortunately, I've been saying this forever and not listened to, and this is the other power of whiteness, right? But I have had to have security guards on occasion, uh, yeah, we're, we're in that moment. At public events? Yes. Yeah. I guess from what you were saying earlier, it sounds like this analysis applies very straightforwardly to issues of gender and class. The key is to use your understanding of gender and class if you have one. And let's face it, you don't automatically have one any more than you have one on what it means to be white if you haven't done some reflection. I mean, you're, you're a man. I don't assume you've done deep thinking about <laughs> your socialization under patriarchy. Um, but if you have, it's a really good way in. So for me as a woman, and I grew up in poverty. So from a very early age, I had an acute sense of the pain of classism. That's been really useful to draw from. The key is not to use it to exempt yourselves. And many white people who are working class or grew up poor or women use that to exempt themselves. I couldn't possibly have privilege. I have suffered. I am not saying white people don't suffer or face barriers. You have not faced that one. That one's huge. And that one has helped you navigate whatever other barriers you face. Uh, this, um, the real oppression is class kind of narrative. I don't know anyone who could look me in the eye and say to be poor and black and to be poor and white is the same experience. Come on. Yeah, it just doesn't add up, does it? No, it doesn't. <laughs> but I mean, as, as usual, it's the people with power who need to fix the problem. 
I believe that racism is a white problem. That does not mean that people of color don't collude or play a part in the same way that I, I play a part in sexism, but uh, those who control the institutions uh, have a particular kind of power and we need to look at it and use it in much more transformative ways. Robin D'Angelo there, she's really not letting us off the hook, is she? Richard? No, not at all. No, I mean, but, I mean, as she says, people from minority ethnic backgrounds have been telling white people that there's a problem for years. It's not that the problem isn't that we have racist impulses. That happens because we've grown up in a racist society. The problem is if you're not taking concrete action to address their effects. So we need to actually stand up and do that. Well, thanks to Robin. White Fragility is published by Penguin in the UK and Beacon Press in the US. We'll be back after the break to talk with Margaret Busby about a project which takes a radically different approach to the responsibilities of representation, making an argument for a lineage, a sisterhood, if you like, of daughters of Africa, straddling continents and stretching back three centuries. Hi, I'm Will Dean, editor of The Guardian Weekly. Since you're a Guardian Books listener, there's a good chance you'll love The Guardian Weekly. It's The Guardian's essential weekly news magazine, featuring a carefully curated selection of Guardian and Observer journalism to give you a global perspective on the issues that matter. You'll find leading opinion writing, analysis, long reads, and cultural coverage from around the world with free worldwide delivery. So, if you think globally, now's the perfect time to start reading weekly. Visit gu.com forward slash books GW. In the late 1960s, when she was still in her very early 20s, Margaret Busby co-founded Alison and Busby, becoming the UK's first black female publisher, also probably the youngest ever to set up a company, (laughs) male or female. (laughs) Though she's too modest to say so, it's one of many of what she calls glorious firsts achieved by black women. She achieved another in 1992 with the publication of Daughters of Africa, a landmark anthology of writing by women she defines as being of African descent. Now she's on to her glorious second with the publication of New Daughters of Africa. And a good few of the astonishing 200 contributors weren't even alive when the first volume came out. She's joining Richard and me in the studio to discuss the issues it raises. But first, Margaret, a cheeky question. What do you think of the idea of white fragility? (laughs) I was glad to hear a bit of the interview just now. And I recognised a lot of what Robin was saying. And it actually was a relief to hear it being said, because quite often, I think she actually said that she'd spoken to black people who had those responses, they hadn't actually spoken them out aloud. And I think, as well, there are things that I would say to my black friends that we recognise, because we don't have to translate things to each other, that I wouldn't say to a white friend, because I wouldn't want to offend them, or I would know they would get defensive, because they're not bad people. (laughs) So that, that's, that's a relief to hear it coming from somebody who themselves is white. So I'm going to now quickly move on to the book, New Daughters of Africa, which I have to say is totally covetable. It's one of those books that I have this, this image of that, that I have intellectual salivary glands, which <laughs> and my intellectual salivary glands have been going ever since I managed to get my hands on this massive book. It's more than 200 pieces Ooh. from loads of the writers I'd never heard of. Um, you've organised it in a really interesting way. So it's organised, it's structured around decade of birth. Chronologically by decade of birth. That's and you don't have any of the Daughters of Africa from the first volume in it, but you have some of their daughters, which well, t- made me feel terribly emotional. I mean, I, I love those connections. I, I love the fact that it's not only the daughters of the people who were in the first volume, but actually in this volume we have 
a mother and daughter. So you have Sadie Smith Sadie and, Smith her and Yvonne Bailey Smith. So and you have Alice Walker's daughter Rebecca, Rebecca Alice Walker. Walker having been yes. in the first in the first And we work. have Attila Springer, whose mother Auntie Pearl Springer was in the first one. We have Nardov, whose aunt Mabel Dov Danko was in the first one. There are all these And Nagogi Wathiongo's daughter. Exactly. So it's, it's how wonderful is that? And it's hugely diverse in its yes. forms. You've got speeches, journalism, quite a lot of poetry. Um, extracts from some already published works, for mm-hmm. example, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie's work on feminism, and short stories. It's, it's got just about every genre you can think of is represented. In fact, one of the ways I put it to the writers I approached, the, the potential contributors, was, was how would you like to see yourself represented? So it was interesting that, for example, we have some poetry by Nadefa Muhammad, who you think of as a novelist. And also we have a piece by Ella Wakatama Olfi, who you think of as a publisher or an editor. So it was lovely to have those, those sort of surprises that happened um, when people sent in their contributions. And I used to meet you when this was in formation, <laughs> and you used to come up in a really worried way at publishing parties and say, do you know any African writers that I should know about? So how did you create these networks? Because it's sort of a, such a massive project. Mm. I am in awe of you for having <laughs> tracked down all these people. I mean, they're, they're in America, they are in Africa, they're in they're, the they're UK, in they're every, everywhere. Every poten- potentially every country could have had a contributor. And I suppose I had to start from what I know, what people had told me, who, who, who I had access to. I had a spreadsheet that had hundreds of names on it. And in fact, every time I, I would write to somebody, I mean, whether it's Sadie Smith or somebody, they'd say, oh, have you thought of so-and-so? So I was forever sort of broadening my horizons. There were just so many people who could have been in it, who should be in it. And I, I really want to do another volume now because, I mean, I'm not satisfied. I, mean, I know this has only just come out, but I keep thinking, oh, why didn't I get that person in? I must have got the wrong email for her or whatever. Or, what, you know, somebody who said they'd been in it but didn't have time to deliver on, you know. So there are lots of reasons I want to do another volume. But I, this is, a, oh, I have to be satisfied. This is a big volume full of wonderful people. I mean, you say 200 living writers and some who are no longer living because I wanted to make sure that, it didn't seem as if we just started writing as African women or women of African descent in, in the sort of 1990s or, you know, in, in the, the, the 20th century. So it goes back to the 19th century with some writers... To, from, the, to the 18th century. Or to the 18th century, Late, yes. very... I mean, it is almost the 19th century. Well, <laughs> I wanted to make, make it clear that this isn't a new phenomenon, that African women, women of African descent, have been writing going back centuries. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's why I wanted to start... It's not as if the, the ones I have included in this volume are the only ones who could have been from that earlier period. I just wanted to make it clear that there are writers, there were writers writing in that early period who have influenced people who are writing in in completely different circumstances and it's their legacy that enables the the younger writers and we go out to people born in the 1990s who would not have been able to do what they're doing now had not all these other writers gone ahead. So so we talked about how you've organised it by decade which is one of the structural principles but then you also have themes. So for example migration Mm. Inevitably, you have quite a mm-hmm. few pieces addressing that. Talk a little bit about that. Well, those themes emerged from what the writers, the contributors themselves, wanted to to send in. So I didn't specify any themes. There are a lot of themes, for example, that whole Windrush generation theme of coming to Britain from the Caribbean, 
that occurs in different ways in different pieces that the writers have sent in. They may be poetry, memoirs, or novel extracts or stories, but they, they reference that journey from the Caribbean to, to Britain or, or even to the States in, in different ways. So that those were themes that kind of emerged naturally. I, I didn't actually go looking for them. I mean, in the same way as that, another theme that comes up in different ways is that theme of identity or self-identity or naming, claiming your name, claiming what you want to look like. There are different aspects of those themes that came out in different ways from all the contributors. So some, I mean, some of the contributors, for example, one obvious thing is some of them are mixed race. Yep. Part of their heritage is that they're exactly, daughters of yeah. Africa. Yeah, I mean, th- there are some people who come from a lot of different places. I mean, it w- I-, I wouldn't want to pigeonhole everybody and say, anybody and say, this person comes from Nigeria. I mean, some people, well, it, it's, as in my case, I, I mean, I was born in Ghana, but actually I have family in, in Dominica, Barbados, Trinidad, you know, all over the place. And, and similarly, there are writers who are in here who have, are of Nigerian and Welsh heritage or, or whatever. And... and they all reference different parts. And there are writers here from, I don't know, Uganda who are writing about Guyana. So there are, there's lots of crossover and lots of you know, connections and, and references that they make to each other's work and, and to the work of previous generations. And it almost adds up to some sort of a, a sort of portrait of that experience. I think so. You're right. Yes. Yeah. It's it's it's. it's some, I mean, I, I, every time I look at it, I, I reread some of the pieces, and it, it's actually. It makes me feel very emotional because there are so many things that I connect with as well as the writers connect with each other in different ways. And it's, it's, it's I mean, for example, there's a, a Ghanese writer in here called Andai and she talks about having been living with cancer and she talked about how Audrey Lord, who also had cancer and died, how reached out to her and how she helped her through the issues that she was dealing with. And, and there, there are stories like that that actually really revealing and and it's hard not to be moved when you read them. Audrey Lord emerges as one of the heroines doesn't she? She's She's so, she was such heroines. a generous spirit yes, she supported yes. other women but there are I mean it, everybody will take different things from it and one of the sto- the things that I found most haunting was Beatrice Lamwaka's missing letter of the alphabet which is about female circumcision yeah. it's a short story and her husband leaves her on her wedding night because he finds out that she has had, mm. she's been mutilated. And she says, we were the alphabet and the C was missing and it made me cry. Yeah, the, the, there are, the writers in the book deal with lots of difficult themes, I guess one would have to call them. And it's it's hard not to empathise with what some of the women are going through or have gone through, whether they're actually memoirs or, or fictionalised stories. So it's, it's, it's one of those books that, you don't know what you're going to find as you turn the page. So now, just to change the subject a little bit, I want, I'd want i love you to read a bit from a poet who I am very, very keen on called Jay Bernard. And this mm. is a, one of the radical inclusions for various reasons. But it also addresses one of the themes we would like to discuss with you a bit. Have things got better? This is an extract from Jay Bernard's piece. I used to be a bit of a psychogeographer. All criticisms considered, I used to like the term the ideas, and made a zine for a short time called Psychogeography for the Modern Black Woman. I equated my gender with the city around me. I was not simply a woman, but a specific knot of places, perceptions, possibilities. It detailed my walks around London and mentioned the bookshops, squats and other spaces I used to go to. Silver Moon, 
Index, Kennington Books, New Beacon, locations that made me make sense. Only one of those, New Beacon, still exists. Isn't that just what happens? Things disappear. So that that's a melancholy note for a young writer to be striking. At a time in which, Richard, you've been doing lots of research into all the new initiatives that are happening that are supposed to be making the landscape <laughs> a better place. Well, as Robin D'Angelo suggests for, for us as individuals, as white people as individuals, that, that there are ways that we can address the racism in our daily lives that are obvious and we just need to take concrete steps now. It seems as if the books industry has reached a similar point where it's obvious that something needs to be done and people are beginning to take concrete steps. Do you think we've reached a point where people are beginning to drive change? I sigh because it's a conversation that's been going on for so long. I remember in the 1980s I was part of a voluntary group called GAP, which stood for Greater Access to Publishing, and we were campaigning for more diversity in the publishing industry. And here we are in the, what are we, the 2019s, and the same conversation is happening and people are still talking about diversity and inclusivity and having projects and initiatives to make the industry more diverse. In a way, that kind of connects with what Robin D'Angelo was saying because those initiatives that we keep hearing about are actually just shedding light on how good these people are who are putting out the initiatives. And, okay, so you may get more BAME, I hate that term, writers published, but how is the industry changing? I can probably name you the majority of those people who are black, for example, in the industry on, on one hand, two hands. Why are there so few? The Publishers Association survey revealed in January that only 11.6% of respondents in the publishing industry use that term. You, you abhor so much BAME as to describe <laughs> yourself as BAME, whereas, I mean, which is you know, far below the UK population, mm. let alone the population of London, which is oh, 40%. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you're right, where are they? Where I are mean, they? And, and it's not only that, but when it, you, you, you might get one within a company, but then the pressure on that person... Is enormous. I mean, I have I have for various friends or people who've become friends, black women working in industry, fulfil the function of they phone me up and I listen to them, tell me what's gone happening in the firm around them. That's all connected with their being the only BAME person in the industry. Like they, they're going to have a meeting on diversity and they get called in because they are the diverse person. And you know, why should it be? so noticeable that there are so few I mean even coming into the Guardian sometimes I, I feel a bit worried because I feel well you know maybe people will think I don't belong here I mean the people who know me like you the guys all right your friends but the security people I'm just some stray black person wandering into the building and you get responses based on the fact that you don't look as if you belong there I'm interested in this unease around the word BAME, which is black and minority ethnic for people who don't know it, because it's an attempt to, in a way, it's a, um, it's a sort of euphemism, isn't it? But mm. it's a euphemism that's got people, it is a very, it's awkward because it somehow contains an anxiousness in the fact that it's a, a sort of loose grouping of everything that isn't the majority, but it, and yet it is a majority, really. Yeah, well, it also, it makes it easier to tick that box, you know, we've got a BAME person. Or, and, and that whole debate about inclusivity and diversity doesn't only refer to BAME people. It doesn't, I mean, working class, disabled. And it's almost as if, the, sometimes it seems as if there's a fashion, OK, we'll do BAME this month or this year and we'll do something else next year. And it shouldn't be like that. I mean, 
I don't want to go to a party where I'm always going to be the only person like me, but I'm not responsible for the invitations of that party, so I can't do anything about it. So the people giving the party who have to say, well, how diverse is our invitation list, if you like. Mm. Richard, some of those publishing initiatives have been going for a while now, haven't they? For, for example, the good agency which Nikesh Shukla set okay. up and, and also right now. Yes, the the reason why I mean it's perhaps it's just that that it seems recent to us, but it seemed to me that Nikesh Shukla's the good literary agency he set it up in 2017 with an Arts Council grant. That seemed like a a new a, to have an agency that was going out and looking for diverse voices seemed like a new step. The Right Now initiative, which Penguin Random House launched in 2016, has now helped 450 writers at regional workshops and has given 33 writers mentoring for a year. And you're beginning to get authors like Elizabeth Jane Burnett, who's going to be on the podcast mm. later this is year. She in your, is she in here? No, because she's emerged after. Yeah. She's only well, just emerging now. There are lots of people who aren't in there. It doesn't mean that they're, they're not worthy of being in here. Mm. They just happen to, I had to stop somewhere. But I, I think also there are a lot of publishers... Well, you know, there, there are pu- good publishers who are doing the right thing without making a song and dance about it. There are people like One World or Canongate. Gate. They, they, they don't have to have special initiatives. And, and people like, you know, Niklesh or, or, or... And there are people who, who are BAME. They don't need to be the ones saying, I've got an initiative, because they, they are the they initiative. just get on with it. Yeah, you know, they, you know, so a lot of... I, I mean, I think it, it's somehow complicating it a bit if everybody has to announce some special initiative. I think... The point is to do something, and whether or not you get glory for doing that is not the point. To, to make the changes happen, you can do it without having a light shone on you to say, look how good I am, I'm doing this. Or But it, there's another point about that, isn't it? It's about the structures of the institutions yes. in whatever country, in this mm-hmm. case the UK. So the structures of the institutions are that in order to get the money to encourage and stimulate a sector, you have to have an initiative. Well, Therefore, it's, it's not even sometimes about encouraging and stimulating the sector. The sector is there. It's about how you access it, how you find it. I mean, 200 living women of African descent in this anthology, they are there. and I, they, they could have been 500. It's, it's whether or not you give them the opportunity to come through, whether or not you go looking in the right places for them. It's not that they don't exist. And it's also about letting them be who they are. Because I think one of the things that sometimes happens is people have an initiative and they will take on board people as trainees or interns in order to train to be like themselves. I think this is such an important point. I actually did an anthology of writing on London last year and I, like you, have ended up with quite a lot of poetry Mm. in it. And the thing is, people tend to say they don't like poetry, it never sells, people don't read it. But in order to let people be who they are, if that's where they are, you Mm -hmm. have to let them do it. And it's one of the things I loved about this anthology. Well, I mean, you know exactly what I'm talking about because you've done that anthology yourself. A so tiny little anthology yeah. compared to this. <laughs> but it, it's, 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 it comes from your mindset. I mean, you have to start with an open mind and, and not assume. I mean, one of the things that often happens is that booksellers or, or people assume that black people don't buy books or black people don't read books. And so, you know, we're having an event at the South Bank. We only have 30 copies. You're going to sell out because people. This happened with this anthology we're talking about. It, it people buy it in twos and threes to give us presents because they're starved of things that actually they can connect with. So it's really the opposite that black people buy books if they're the books that they want to buy are available. This is one of the things that the Cooperative Children's Book Centre in the US has, has revealed a set of figures, uh, which has showed a, a massive rise recently in the number of 
children's books published in the US from diverse authors and about diverse people. It's doubled in the last 10 years mm. um, from an admittedly terrible level to, to something which is beginning to achieve some sort of respectability. And it's what, reflected in the Carnegie shortlist, isn't it? The, the Carnegie Prize. Yes, absolutely. The Carnegie Medal, uh, there was a row in 2017 about the, the fact that they'd never awarded a Carnegie Medal to a, an author, author of colour. And they, uh, and they had a long list without one single author of colour on it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so they, they commissioned a report and have uh, changed the, uh, the awareness. I mean, the, the librarians who make the selections are predominantly, overwhelmingly white. And so they try to change that mindset. And this year, the shortlists were announced last week. And there are many more people of colour there. Well, I think there's also a strange notion that white people don't buy books by black people. Or that if you have a... I mean, I, I grew up buying children's, you know, reading children's books that featured Snow White and white pictures. No black people. So if I could, and, and most of my peers and people have come after me, they're used to children's books that have no connection with their own lives. So why suddenly, when, you, you know, you're getting some black publishers like Tamarind Books, Bernard Wilkins, or people who are making it apparent that it's necessary for black children to have images of themselves in books... Why should white children not also enjoy the, those books? And that's something that the CCBC director yeah. cited about about the the increase is that it's been driven by commercial success. I mean, titles like Angie Thomas's The Hate You Give they're just tremendous mm. bestsellers, and so publishers need to be realising that. Yeah, I think one has to start from the people making the decisions about what to publish, what to stock in the books bookshops. They had to be open enough to think well. We, we've done things like this in the past, but that, that doesn't mean we have to always do things in the same way. Let's look at doing things in a different way. Let's be open to being schooled in how to do things differently. So I, I think that's part of the problem, that, that it's not always the fact that those traditional gatekeepers are the ones who know how best to do things. Sometimes they, they do things because that's how they've always done things. And just, just before we wrap up, I mean, there's one interesting thing that comes out of the Carnegie list, which relates very much to the Daughters of Africa, New Daughters mm. of Africa project, which is that these writers, a lot of them are writing verse novels. So the, mm -hmm. the sort of link between verse and, and people who have been excluded from a, a lot of the time from from conventional, you know, the media, as it were, mediaized conversation yeah. and a lot of is, is, is coming up in all sorts of different ways. No, you're right. And, and the other thing that I find reading some of these uh, contributors, the new daughters, they're, they're writing things. They're spurred to write because they couldn't find what they wanted to read. So they're writing books, they're writing about topics that are not explored in any other things that they could find. So it's a bit like what uh, what Alice Walker said or Toni Morrison have said in the past. They're writing the books they would have liked to read. I, I did the anthology I would have liked to see exist. So if it's not there, let's create it. Margaret, thank you so much for coming in. Um, we could go on talking all day. We probably will go on talking <laughs> all day. I will certainly go on reading for many, many years. Thank um, you. The New Daughters of Africa is published by Myriad Editions. In next week's podcast, Nina Stibby will bring us all her reasons to be cheerful with the most recent of Lizzie Fogel's adventures. And as always, do contact us on Twitter at Guardian Books or by leaving a comment on the podcast page. And also subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, from me, Claire Armistead. And me, Richard Lee. And our producer, Susanna Tresillian. Thanks for listening and goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> 
for more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.